You are Locked On SEC Football, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Media days. Uh, So uh, we'll start with Chris Landry of LandryFootball.com. And Chris, let me start with this when it comes to SEC media days. The whole um, idea of standing in front of 400 people is not something that most people would want to do um, and talk. And I'm sure it's uncomfortable for a lot of coaches. How much of a challenge is that in terms of, of the job? I'm, I, I bet more some people are comfortable with it, but I would think a lot aren't. I think it's not ideal because you 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 want to be careful what you say. You want to be very vanilla. You don't want to say anything that somebody's going to take and use against you and say, "Oh, but you hear what he said." It's kind of like you know one of those. What's the saying? You know, uh, hey Dave, I, I like that shirt you're wearing. Oh, what's the matter? You, you you didn't like the one I was wearing yesterday? I mean, you know, people would twist <laughs> everything over. I think there's a couple of things though. College coaches have experience with take, uh, speaking with booster clubs and booster functions. A lot of them are, you know, at least, you know, 500, 600, even more. Uh, so you're, you're speaking with, you know, in front of people. Now, you're speaking to people that are, you know, you're going to get them, coach. You know, you know, so it's a little bit of a different type of deal. Um, so I think it's, uh, it's new for the, you know, the new coaches. Because, listen, I think a lot of assistants – they will be given some duties to go speak out to certain booster clubs when they're an assistant. Um, but it's not quite the same. Uh, and I think it is a little different in that you, you don't want to get asked questions. I think it's, um, it's really interesting when you have a problem. If you're, if you're urban Meyer at Ohio state's media day last year, and that was obviously one. And, uh, that was kind of a, a get you, you know, one where you had a report that came out by a reporter. It said one thing and you, 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 you denounce it as a lie and a complete fabrication. And then there's evidence to support that it was, you know, then I think you can kind of step into it. So I think you got to be careful. What was it? Was it Terry Bowden years ago that had something? He had the questions, had the probation question. So he went up there and I think he, spoke on every player at every position. And when he was done, they said, you know, your time's up coach. So he, he filibustered. So no one could ask a question. Um, so I think unless you got something like that, that's, uh, going behind the scenes, that's a, that's an issue. Uh, I think most guys would prefer to get it over with. And I think that that's how coaches look at it, but here's the way I also think it's, it's a way for you as a coach to promote your program, to sell your program. You know, I don't know how, how many people watch it, how many players that watch it. But, you know, I think because it's kind of the, as you said, kind of the start of the season, a lot of people will. So uh, anytime you speak, even if it's, you know, at the hotel before a game that's going on national television or something, it's it's a way to speak about your program, your team, and to sell yourself as a staff. and as your pro- So I think you got to embrace it as a way to sell it and be a, just take what you want to do and then, you know, don't, uh, you know, as, as I like to say, and Belichick, who I, you know, spend a lot of time around, he is considered like the worst in front of the media, but I think he does the best job of controlling the message because he doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to talk about it. Now that's at the pro level and that's different at college. A Nick Saban doesn't really like it, but he also recognizes that it's crucial 
to put a, a face on the program, and he does it very well. Nick can be very charming, and he can be very uh, – it can be nasty Nick at times. So I, I think how you deal with it is you need to take it and say, hey, you go put your message out there, and somebody asks you something – you don't want you just sit there and you just you you know, you kind of shoot it down and and make sure that uh, hey I, I'm not getting into that or whatever. I think you've got to you got to take that message. That's why they got these PR guys now that are so involved. That uh, really, quite frankly, used to be remember the old days, Dave. You had a sports information director gave you a few stats, gave you a few quotes, and that was it. Now now these guys are kind of shaping how things are presented in the media, because that's a big deal in, the, in this, the modern day information age. The, the most entertaining guy, uh, at, that I've seen uh, behind a podium was definitely Steve Spurrier. Yeah. You never, ever wanted to miss him. Um, you know, I would even go to the print room when I was just doing radio because I just wanted to hear him. I wasn't using any of that because the audio wasn't good enough, but I wanted to hear him. So I'm curious who are some of the most entertaining guys that you've been around coaches in staff meetings that, uh, you know, if they wanted to, they could get everybody, everybody chuckling at the right time. You're not going to believe it, but Belichick is a unbelievable one-liner and unbelievably self-deprecating. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. He's uh some of it I cannot say. You know, even though we're we're not regulated by the FCC, and I probably could say it, I'm just not comfortable saying it. But he'd say stuff, and you know, in a, but he 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 kind of he'd be he'd be snarly too. But but he would come up with some stuff. I wouldn't call him chuckles, but you know, he was uh, he did. Some, but you got to remember something. I I coach for you know uh, Bill Orangeparker. And I tell people all the time, Bill Orangebarger was, um, man, you know, he, he made Nick Saban and Bill Belichick look like Don Wrinkles. I mean, he was, you know, part uh, Orangebarger was really tough. So I, Steve Spurrier definitely was the guy was kind of very, very comical, kind of very sarcastic. Um, he definitely the one just publicly, but, but behind the scenes, at least the people that I've been around, um, you know, Ditka was a was a was a piece of work. Uh, was just you know one of those guys that uh, that talk a lot. Parcells definitely, we we'd call him uh, you know we call him uh, uh, the Jersey jerk because he he'd act like a jerk at times and he would he'd say a lot of jerky things, but they were pretty funny too. Um, I'm trying to think who uh, who would really jump out and 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 yeah, I don't know that I had a many of them that were were uh, what I would call overly funny. But Spurrier would definitely be up there and definitely speaking to the media. You know, he I mean, he was a media – he was media goal because, I mean, he'd sit there and he'd poke anybody. Um, man, he, he would absolutely do that. I mean, you know that firsthand covering Tennessee all those years that, uh, man, did he just poke the fun at, at uh, Philip Fulmer and Tennessee. And, I mean, you know, the whole uh, – <laughs> against Bell Citrus and out the UNT and he just did it over and over again. And he had that cause he kind of grew up in East Tennessee and, you know, he kind of had that, uh, had that in his background, but he also obviously faced them when Florida and Tennessee was the game in the sec. Uh, the, the craziest thing he ever did, and this might blow you away that I'm, that I'm aware of. And you mentioned a couple of them, but he actually called, 
I believe this is before the 97 Tennessee-Florida game, called a journalist, uh, a columnist in Knoxville and said, I, I wanted to see if you wanted to do a column on me. Well, that never happens. No, no subject ever calls you as a journalist. You're always calling them. Right. And he called and he said, I just wanted to congratulate the uh, the Lady Vols and uh, uh, being champions and what it must feel like to be a champion. Well, that was an obvious shot at <laughs> Philip Fulmer not winning a national championship <sighs> yet. And it was just that he would go out of his way to prod his rival. And, and talent-wise, they were pretty close. They ended up winning in 98. But he would go out of his way to prod his rival. I still think that's absolutely comical. No, it, it really was. And and it's, you know, not, not considered uh, along the lines of how you conduct yourself as a coach. You would never see a guy like Nick Saban do that because he's always respectful of coaches. But, you know, Steve was always one that, he held grudges and, you know, he just, um, he, he was like that. That was just, that was his personality. Yep. All right. We've got some news of the day to get to. Let's start with, uh, an Arkansas transfer. What do you make of the Razorbacks uh, losing out on a player? Well, Sam Loy uh, comes in from Colorado, so that's a good get for Arkansas. Uh, he's a guy that really is a good punter. He's a true freshman. I thought he did a nice job, and he's going to get some work. We'll see what he can do and whether he can beat out Reed Bauer, but uh, it's a good get for the Arkansas Razorbacks. And I'm sure you saw it, David. We had uh, uh, the Red Sox uh, sign Felipe Franks and the uh, Got, was drafted in the 31st round. going to be interesting to see because I am not as high on him as a pro prospect in football. I'm curious to see what his baseball talents might be. Um, and the other thing I was going to mention, too, that uh, Alabama is uh, losing, it looks like is losing Kendrick James, tight end, who's entering the transfer portal now, suspended by the team for four games. And, um, you know, I think that was probably something where – He's looking to get out, and he's kind of in the doghouse. So nothing really surprising there, but it is newsworthy uh, with those three. And I want to get to Jeremy Pruitt's uh, minor NCAA violation right after this. It's not huge news, but I want you to give us a look into kind of the probable backstory of how something like that could could happen. So stay tuned. This is your Locked On SEC Football Podcast. He is Chris Landry. I'm Dave Hooker reminding you to go to Twillery.com. Twillery.com. Use the promo code Locked On. Get $25 off. Locked On. Get $25 off your purchase. Fantastic, comfortable, soft shirts that you don't have to iron. They are incredible. So stay tuned. More after this, your Locked On SEC Football Podcast. He's Chris Landry of LandryFootball.com. I'm Dave Hooker. You are Locked On SEC Football, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to your Locked On SEC Football Podcast. He's Chris Landry of LandryFootball.com. you got to check out that website. It is awesome. It is fantastic and full of NFL news and notes. It's fantastic of breakdowns. Uh, college, the same thing. Recruiting as well. You're not going to find anybody that covers football like Chris Landry. Promise you that. All right. Let's get to Jeremy Pruitt. It was a very minor violation on his Twitter feed. It was sent out that he congratulated what is a Tennessee prospect for winning the championship in another sport. And I think people... You know, because they have their 
phone glued to their hand that they probably think that, hey, um, that's definitely Jeremy Pruitt. Well, I'm not sure because a football staffer um, and the support staff was also made aware of the violation, which tells me that Jeremy Pruitt's got a lot more going on than to be on Twitter and social media all the time. And there's a good chance there's someone that's there to tweet out positive information about the Vols. Is that pretty common from people you've talked to? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I would be shocked if Jeremy's, you know, doing it. Now, let me say this, that uh, I'm sure because of his assistant days in, at Alabama that he's well-versed in the Twitter stuff, uh, excuse me, the uh, the texting stuff. So, I mean, I think guys, assistant coaches now, that's a big part of what they do. They got to text with kids today. But I would, I, I would be very surprised if he was out tweeting uh, the stuff, and obviously it's a congratulatory note to, to his uh, alma mater. And um, look, it's much ado about nothing. You can, you know, you report that. That's no big deal. But it's very unlikely him. Now, he's still responsible for it, whatever. Somebody does it on the staff. You know they've got a social media person. They've got a large staff now that does that. So I, I would say that anything that's tweeted out uh, is tweeted out by somebody other than any head coach that you might see some uh, head coaches text because, you know, that's a way to communicate with players. So that's no different today than calling on yourself. I do know this, that Nick Saban, for example, does not text. He does not text. He does. I mean, he doesn't, he calls. And I, well, that's just his thing. He feels like it's, it's more effective if he calls, but he's not having to call as many players as his assistants. So, you know, it's, it's a different situation. So I would say that, uh, Listen, it's much ado about nothing. It's a minor infraction. I remember when I was a recruiting coordinator at LSU, they had this dumb rule that they started. Okay, so first of all, you could only call a prospect one time a week. Okay, that's fine. But you would think that if I would say out there, what constitutes the start of the week? You'd probably say Sunday or Monday, right? Well, for right. some reason, in an infinite wisdom, the NCAA started the week on a Tuesday. They just say every Tuesday. <laughs> so I called a kid on a Tuesday, and I called a kid the next Monday, and I had to report about it. Well, there's nothing to it and nothing happening. But, you know, I mean, kind of difficult. You know, you 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 know, you know, usually kind of a week apart. It wasn't a week apart where you can make – it's like it's just something – you have a lot of goofy stuff like that. But, you know, they try to do it to control the whole operation, make sure that people stay in line. But – most of that stuff, when you report it, nothing happens. So you could have called the kid on a Monday, and then the fiscal week, for lack of a better word, starts on a Tuesday. So you could have called him Monday and then Tuesday, and that's not a violation? Yeah, apparently so. That was something, and without, which, I, <laughs> which I would have never done that because I would have thought, well, that's the same week. But that was, uh, yeah, that was, they, they changed that pretty quickly, and I never really got a good explanation as you ever did by the compliance office of the, the SEC at the time. <laughs> that, is, that, that sounds just like the NCAA. Um, let's get to uh, some news out of Florida. They lose a freshman to an ACL injury. You always hate to hear that. Uh, but, uh, we, we've seen with the advances of medical technology that, gosh, ACL is almost like a high ankle sprain 20 years ago. I mean, it's just um, he's going to be out for the season, but it's not something that will permanently affect his career, you wouldn't think. 
No, no, it's a ruptured Achilles. Those are serious. But I think just the fact that it's going to hurt their depth, I think he was going to – David Reese is who we're talking about, 6'3", 221-pound young guy that is going to play that buck in position and I thought be their third – be their fourth, if not their third uh, in the rotation there uh, in nickel. So, I, you know, I think it certainly hurts their depth. He was going to earn some reps. There was no question about it. It's an impressive-looking young player. Uh, he'll be back 2020. But don't expect him to be back for this season. That's a tough loss for the Gators. Been tough loss for the young man who's worked so hard and could have had an impact as a freshman. So I, I may have misspoke. So it was an Achilles and not an ACL. That's probably a little. That's certainly a little more serious, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, and and again, I mean, it it just takes a little bit more difficult in the rehab. But uh, the rehabs is how you. That's how you really gauge all of this. That it'll be fixed, but it'll take a little time and. I don't expect him being in back to the end of the year. Wish him the best, but I, you know, I think the the expectation is twenty twenty. You said you had a lot of expect, or you said you had a lot of questions recently about Jake Fromm, and I do too. We've we've had this debate um, kind of going on, on on my radio show, and that is uh, Jake Fromm. Just how good is he? Is there a glass ceiling there? I, I, I you know, and I'm I just want to get your take on him because it it seems to me that he's very good. But I don't know that he is great or can even be great at the at the next level. How do you evaluate him? Well, you know, people have asked me a lot lately about it. I've just had a bombarded of questions of and, and usually it's people that I think overrate or underrate him. I mean, I get this that he's the the, the most you know, somebody asked me the other day, um, um that that I guess somebody wrote an article and was asking me about you know, uh, that, that somebody said he was the best pro-writing quarterback since Andrew Luck. Well, no, no, he's not. Um, but some people think he's not that good, and I would say, no, it's, I disagree. He's very good. Uh, I think he's one of the most accurate quarterbacks in the country. And I don't, I don't think he has the best arm or the elite athleticism, but I think he's ahead of the game of most quarterbacks in reading defenses, hitting the open guy. And his, his intangibles are going to land him a spot in the league and I think be very effective. And look, I, you know, if you look at guys like a Daniel Jones and how he progressed, um, you know, last year, I have no doubt in my mind that Jake could make it in the league. But I think what he is is a cerebral quarterback that's very accurate. And I think there's some things that a guy like Tua could learn from Jake. I think there are guys that uh, Justin Herbert could learn from Jake because I think from the neck up, he does a really good job making decisions, getting the ball out on time, and getting it accurately. So I like him. I like him a lot. But do I think he's just a an elite talent, just jump off the the the, the uh, the film, no, he, he's not that type of guy. He's a guy that grows on you because I think he's very, very smart, very, very functional. And I think he's going to have a really good year, and I think he'll have a good pro career. But I think you're going to have to play very well around him. He's not a guy that's going to – you can win with him, but I don't think he can win for you at the pro level. The college level, he's obviously on a great team in a great situation, and there's no doubt in my mind because people have asked me this – can, can you win a national championship with Jake Fromm? And the answer is absolutely yes. Now, will you? Well, I don't know. I mean, they've had a chance the past couple of years and fallen short. That's the way it goes. But it's certainly not due to anything that Jake Fromm can't be because I think he can be very good. Along those lines, let's talk about Kellen Mond, uh, your, your thoughts on him. You know, I think uh, is one of the more intriguing guys coming in this season 
in that I think Jimbo does a great job with these guys. I think he's capable as a passer, but his accuracy has got to, some work to to um, to really uh, – he's got to grow there in terms of his accuracy. Um, I thought he pushed the ball down the field fairly well as the season went along last year, and I think he's a strong runner. So I think he can do some dual threat things that Jimbo's going to work with him very well. And, um, you know, people have asked me, who's the thir- third best quarterback in the SEC going into the year? Well, we know who the top two are. And I think there's a big drop-off after Tua and Jake Fromm. Uh, and I don't know who the third best is. It very well may be Kellen Mond, though. I think he can throw him in the mix in the conversation. But I would throw him in the package with Jimbo and the way Jimbo coaches All right, coming up, we will have a breakdown of the SEC West. Uh, I'm sorry, the SEC East, because goodness knows uh, the media has predicted it wrong just about every year. So maybe Chris Landry can do a better job. I bet he can. Uh, He's Chris Landry of LandryFootball.com. I'm Dave Hooker. More after this. You are locked on SEC football, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back. You're locked on SEC football podcast. He's Chris Landry of LandryFootball.com. The media will attend uh, Birmingham, Alabama for the SEC media days, and I'll be there. We'll have interviews and reports from SEC media days. I'll go ahead and tell you right now, there's probably a pretty good chance our predictions aren't going to be very good as uh, we have not done a good job over the years predicting the finish in the SEC East. And West. So let me ask you, Chris Landry, you know more about these rosters from top to bottom than anybody in the media. I can promise you that. So your thoughts on uh, how teams finish in the SEC East? Well, much like when we discuss the West, I see them in clusters because like I look at players or teams, I grade them and then then you stack them. And, and I see as a top two and a next two. And then I see um you know, two, two, and three, and and I kind of see them in clusters. I don't think it takes a genius to figure out who the top cluster is. Is that's Georgia and Florida? I think that those are the two best teams in the East going into the season. And then again, things can significant injuries and and whatnot can certainly derail how I may see it as it uh, as it develops. But I definitely think that um, it's Georgia and then it's Florida uh, in that order, personally. Then I think it gets a little interesting to me. From a roster standpoint, I think people may be a little surprised. And I don't know. I, it, the, the two teams that I would put in the next group would be Missouri and South Carolina. And I'm not sure in what order. And I think it may come down to uh, who plays the best at the quarterback position, um, Jake Bentley or Kelly Bryant. And it, it could very well determine it. I think South Carolina is a little bit better on the defensive line. I think Missouri's a little better on the offensive line. I think Missouri's got a great tight end, got a great running back. So I think Missouri could be a little bit of a sleeper team in that they can be pretty good and, you know, maybe challenge and be third. You know, not first or second in these, but maybe third. So I think it could be South Carolina or Missouri third or fourth either way. I think Tennessee could potentially get there, but I would put them on the top of the the final cluster, you know, ahead of Kentucky and ahead of Vanderbilt. I think it's the time for Kentucky, excuse me, for Tennessee to take care of business against, you know, Kentucky and Vanderbilt. And probably, you know, where it's going to come down for Tennessee is, 
you know, not whether they can beat Georgia, which I don't think they can. It's not whether they can beat Florida, which I don't think they can. It's not whether they can beat Alabama, which I don't think they can. It's can they beat South Carolina? Can they beat Missouri? Do that, and then we could talk about the Vols being third. I think historically that's where they would be. I don't think they are now. I think that right now Missouri and South Carolina's got a little bit more balance on the roster, and we'll see how this plays out. But um, I kind of see Tennessee. Then I see Kentucky and Vanderbilt. I like what Kentucky's bringing back, but it's certainly not what they were last year. I like what Vanderbilt has in terms of playmakers on offense. But as we talk uh, talked about them breaking them down, both Kentucky and Vanderbilt, uh, I you know I just don't think they have an overall depth of enough quality of depth to be as much of a factor as they were last year, particularly in Kentucky's case. So, but some people like Kentucky to finish as high as third. I don't see it that way. Personally, I think a little bit of a step back. And the reason is it was a dominant defense last year with a really good running game. And I think the running game will be a little bit uh, different, not quite as good. And I don't think the defense is going to be as good. So I think you're going to see Kentucky take a little bit of a step back from where they were last year. But I think Kentucky and Vanderbilt, and Tennessee are all bowl teams. And um, so that would make everybody, in my opinion, in the SEC East Bowl eligible. Um, and that's kind of how I see it playing out. Oh, interesting. Um, I'm sure that's a better job than we'll do in Birmingham. Who so. knows? I don't know. I, I don't know about that. <laughs> now, we'll see. No, it, I, I can promise you. goes along. <laughs> I, I can promise you. He's Chris Landry at LandryFootball.com. Uh, I'm Dave Hooker. That's your Locked on SEC Football podcast. Next time you uh, hear us, we'll be live from uh, Birmingham, or at least taped from Birmingham for this podcast. Please give us a review. We would love to hear what you think about this podcast. Remember, we got the Locked on Big Ten Football podcast as well. So with Chris Landry, I'm Dave Hooker. Have a fantastic day, everyone.